Okay, today we are going to finish the book of Colossians. We are in Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to land the plane. My wife is always anxious for me to land the plane. That means the sermon is coming to the end. On September 12, 2011, Brandon Wright, a 21-year-old university student, was riding his motorcycle en route to his computer lab at Utah State University. Right then, a BMW was pulling out of a parking lot and ran into him. Instantly, both the motorcycle and the BMW were engulfed in flames. The driver of the BMW got out quickly. However, Brandon Wright was pinned under the 4,000-pound BMW. The horrific accident drew a crowd of students and construction workers almost instantly. One passerby walked around the burning vehicles to assess the situation. At first, it wasn't clear that there was anyone trapped under the car. Then someone saw a body under the car, but they assumed he was dead. Someone tried to lift the heavy car, but it was impossible to budge. A woman lay down on the ground to see the body and realize that there was a man who was alive. The flames became more intense. Then someone came over and started lifting on the car. Soon there was a group. Then there was over 30 people shoulder to shoulder lifting the car. Together they tilted the car up off of two wheels. Then someone else drug the body away from the flames. And just then the city emergency responders arrived. They put out the fire and transported Brandon Wright to a medical center. He had two broken legs and a fractured pelvis. One person alone could not rescue Brandon. But when the group banded together as one, Brandon was rescued from beneath a burning car in less than a minute. If you want to see that, it's on YouTube. God has so designed the church to be like that, to band together as one, to strive together as one for the sake of the gospel, rescuing people from flames that last for an eternity. The church is a team. Teamwork is what makes the church the church. If the church of Jesus Christ is to thrive It must have teamwork. Today we come to the end of our book of Colossians, and here we're going to meet the Apostle Paul's team. When we come to the end of a book like this, and and I, I admit that sometimes I read the end of the book very fast, because it's just a list of names. But all scripture is given to us for profit, and let's look at the Apostle Paul's team this morning. The first thing I want to say, if you follow in your Outlines in the programs, achieving mission in the first century required committed teamwork. That's what we see. Achieving mission in the first century required teamwork. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7. And let me just uh, take a minute and remind us of the mission. The mission of the first century church is the very same mission that we have today. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus is speaking. The context, remember, it's after the resurrection, and it's uh, shortly before he will ascend into heaven. He's leaving his disciples. He's leaving the earth. 
He's going to hand over his job to them. They, they will become the church. And here's what he said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And here's the promise. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. There's one main verb in this passage uh, in the original language, and it's to make disciples. The other verbal forms are uh, participles, and they modify or support the main verb to make disciples. Making disciples is twofold. It includes evangelism, reaching out, proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, so that people understand, so that people can respond to Jesus Christ in faith when they understand. If they don't understand, they can't respond in faith. That's evangelism. And discipleship is helping them grow. And Jesus said, teach them uh, to obey everything I've commanded you. His goal wasn't so we'd have a bunch of good Christians who get B-plus on the report cards. He wanted them to obey everything he commanded. A fully devoted follower of Christ. Another part of this is going, therefore go. There's an assumption if you make disciples, you go. You go. Since you're going, when you're going, as you go, make disciples. That means some people go around the world. Some people go to work. Some people go to coffee. But when you go, make disciples. Okay? And then he also, as you make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was his plan. You make a disciple. When you have a disciple, when somebody's come to faith in Christ, they get baptized. The order is not get baptized, then become a disciple. The order is become a disciple, get baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It is the desire of Jesus Christ that every disciple be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I will ask you, have you been baptized as a follower of Christ? If you haven't been, you should consider it. Okay, that's the mission. Same mission we have. Now the team, verses 7 through 18. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Who's writing this? Paul. Paul the Apostle. Where's Paul? Anybody remember where Paul is? Paul is in Rome and he's in prison. Rome is a long way from Colossae to whom this letter is written, the Colossians. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. And he brings up the first man, Tychicus, the faithful minister. The team, Tychicus is first, the faithful minister. He's on the list first. He is the one who will hand deliver this letter written to the Colossians. He will take take it to them from Rome to Colossae in person, and he will hand them literally this letter letter. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. Now, Paul could have written all the news. Hey, I'm in Rome. I'm chained to a Roman soldier. Things are kind of tough here, but we're sharing the gospel. Paul could have written it all out for them, but he says, no, I'm going to let Tychicus update you. He's a dear brother. He meant a lot to Paul. A faithful ministry, a minister, meaning a servant, a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul had a high value for Tychicus. Uh, verse 8, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. 
Tychicus will inform the Colossians about everything, going to tell the whole story, going to answer their questions, and he's also going to encourage them. I'm guessing he maybe was gifted in the area of encouragement. Also, he has news of God's working that will encourage the church in Colossae. Verse 9, he's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything. So it's going to be two people going, going to hand deliver the letter. Tychicus is the chief person. Onesimus will uh, accompany. Ephesians 6.21 is another mention of Tychicus. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus was the one who carried the letter to Ephesus, to the Ephesians. Now, here's a real person with a real story and a real life and a real family. And he too, somewhere along the line, placed his faith in Jesus just like you. And he's a real person and yet, gosh, we don't know a lot about him. He's not one of the big heroes, but he's a servant of Jesus. Now we come to Onesimus, the runaway, verse 9. He is coming with Onesimus, Tychicus coming with Onesimus. And Onesimus was a key person at this stage of Paul's ministry. Onesimus was from Colossae. He's from that city where this letter is going. Onesimus is in Rome with Paul, but he's returning back to Colossae. He was a slave of a man named... Philemon. I knew you knew that. Philemon is a book in the Bible in the New Testament. It's a one-pager, one chapter. You should read it and learn about Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway from Philemon. And he ended up wandering around apparently in Rome. He got all the way from Colossae, which is across the Mediterranean world. We're going to show you in a map in a little bit. There he found Paul. And guess what happened when he met Paul? Oh, by the way, he heard the gospel. Oh, by the way, he placed his faith in Jesus. And by the way, he became a follower of Christ. And now he's serving Christ. And guess what? He's got enough courage now to go back to Colossae and face the music. He's going to go, go back and have to meet Philemon and explain. Onesimus is now a brand new Christian. And Paul is going to send him back and make it right. Philemon chapter 8 verses 8 through 13. There's no chapter 8, it's verse 8. Paul writes, and just to to introduce you to Onesimus, therefore although in Christ I could be bold and order you, Philemon, to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, the old man. I like that because I, more and more I'm identifying with Paul. Um, the, Paul, the old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And if you read through the New Testament, you see that Paul was actually a prisoner in Rome at this time. But the way Paul saw the whole thing was, he was a prisoner of Jesus. It wasn't Rome that had him. It was Jesus who had him. He was there by God's direction. He was in change for the sake of the gospel because Jesus put him there. And he accepted his chains. It wasn't like he wasn't willing to leave, but he adapted. 
and proclaim the gospel from his chains. And you know what? You can't chain the gospel. Read the book of Philippians. His story was well known through the whole Praetorian Guard. It spread through all of the Roman uh, Caesar's uh, top unit, 600 troops, best in the, in the empire. I, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, verse 10, that I, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, not physically, but spiritually, who became my son while I was in chains. That's when he came to faith in Christ, while Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Uh, Next slide. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. Formerly, he wasn't that beneficial, was he? Kind of had an attitude, and then, lo and behold, he ran away. Worthless to you, not benefiting you in any way. However, when he came to Rome, he became extremely useful, Paul says, to me. It was for the sake of the gospel Verse 12, I'm sending him, I'm sending Onesimus back to Philemon, who is my very heart. Paul loved this man. Paul learned to love Onesimus. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Now that Onesimus is a follower of Christ, uh, Philemon, I could say, you could serve me by just leaving Onesimus to help me. That would be good. Uh, he said, I, I, I would like to have Onesimus here with me at my side because he's helping me advance the gospel. But no, I'm going to send him back. I'm going to send him back to you because that is the right thing to do. So that's Onesimus. Philemon and Onesimus need to be restored. There's been a break in their relationship. And, you know, just a reminder to us, is there a break in any of your relationships that need to be restored? Are there some steps that you need to take to make it right? You need to go back anywhere and just open the conversation, own up to any responsibility you have, and seek to restore that relationship. Okay, verse 10, the next person on Paul's team, Aristarchus. He says, verse 10, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus sends you his greetings. We know little about Aristarchus. He is with Paul in Rome as a prisoner. We catch a glimpse of Aristarchus in Acts 19, verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. In Ephesus, where Paul had preached the gospel and made the people mad because they um, worshipped Diana and they sold trinkets of Diana. It was a big silver trade in Ephesus. And Paul was messing with it by proclaiming the gospel. And people were coming to faith in Christ and burning their idols and throwing their silver into a big fire. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus. So Aristarchus is a traveling companion of Paul and he's going to be arrested for the sake of the gospel. And they're from Macedonia, actually from Thessalonica. And all of them rushed into the theater and... Eventually, they're going to be released, and Paul is going to be released. That's Aristarchus. Now we go to uh, number four in verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him, because 
We've had a riff in our relationship in the past, and you may have heard that, but I want you to know now you should welcome him. Um, Mark appears in the New Testament on several occasions. He is a relative of the man Barnabas. You remember? Barnabas is older than Paul. If you think Paul is old, Barnabas is even older than Paul. And Barnabas took Paul under his wing as a brand new Christian before Paul became the great apostle. As a young believer, he was mentored by Barnabas. Barnabas had, actually this is a nephew, kind of a distant cousin, a nephew. It's actually his sister's son. In Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we run into Mark, John Mark. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission in the first missionary journey in Acts 12, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. The Apostle Paul was fairly task-oriented. He kind of had one goal, proclaim the gospel, proclaim the gospel. We're going to proclaim the gospel. Are you in? We're going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to advance the gospel. Join in. Come together. Let's do this together. We're the church. We're going to proclaim the gospel. And he was dead set. One track mind. Barnabas, Paul was task oriented. Barnabas was people oriented. He cared about the people he was working with. He loved Paul when everybody was against Paul. He sees potential in John Mark. Paul sees the task. We have to be efficient. I'm not sure um, this is a good guy. And so by the time we get to um, Acts 15, yep, let's look at Acts 15. So this is a little bit later after that Acts 12. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach. Let's have another missionary journey. Let's have a second missionary journey. If you study the book of Acts, Paul's life is outlined in three major journeys in the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean Sea, where he planted churches and um, encouraged the churches. Let's go back and visit the believers in all those churches. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. It's understandable. Mark, Mark is relational, or excuse me, Barnabas is relational. He wants to mentor John Mark. He sees the potential, what this man will become. Next slide. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted him at Pamphylia and had not continued with him in the work. Paul's pretty practical. We can't count on this guy. I need to count on my team. If we're going to do this mission, we've got to have a team. We've got to hang together. We've got to be loyal. We've got to be committed. Paul disagreed. It's not that he didn't like John Mark. He didn't think it wise. Doesn't seem like a good idea right now. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers in the grace of the Lord. How could they be commended? They had such a sharp disagreement, they argued. This was intense. Now, here's what I want you to see. Here are two godly men who totally disagree on this situation. Now, that doesn't make either one of them wrong. You can be emotional and have a strong opinion. You do not have to dishonor anybody in a conflict. They came to agreement that it would be best. Instead of having one team, God says, let's have two teams. Instead of sending out three, let's send out four. Now we have two teams. We've just kind of multiplied there. Um, 
Barnabas saw the potential in Mark. That's okay for Paul, but what he sees, let's get the job done right now. What we have to do right now requires that we leave John Mark behind. Because he had a good reason. There was a time that John Mark didn't follow through. He had a commitment. He didn't make it. Christians do that, don't they? Sometimes make commitments. Sometimes they don't follow through. And sometimes people write them off for the rest of their life because they failed at something. However, not such a great idea. Paul's going to learn more about Mark, and he's going to watch Mark's life, and he's going to become a very valuable player in the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke was with me, Paul says. This is at the end of his life. This is after that initial, uh, initial imprisonment in Rome for two years. This is when Paul is about to be beheaded in Rome. Only Luke is with me. Luke, the writer of the gospel. Luke, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. In his last days, he wants Mark to be there. He wants somebody he can count on, somebody who's important. He needs Mark. The Apostle Paul has thoroughly uh, changed his mind about Mark. And sometimes, you know, there are people in our lives who maybe let us down and we just need to hang with them, encourage them, and embrace them like Paul did with Mark. Then we go, go to Jesus called Justice. Very little is known about Jesus who is called Justice. He also sends greetings. And then Paul says, These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Jesus was a common name. It was a, uh, a Jewish name. We think of only one Jesus, but it was very common uh, in the first century. It's the same name as Joshua. Um, he was a co-worker with Paul in Rome. There are three Jewish Christians in Rome with Paul. Um, Aristarchus, John Mark, and Jesus called Justice. And Paul makes reference. They're the only ones who are hanging in there with him, Jewish Christians, in Rome. Verses 12 and 13, we come to Epaphras the wrestler. Epaphras, who is one of you. He's a Colossian. Epaphras is from Colossae. And a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He was also wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm and, and in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Epaphras was a hard worker, and he, was, he understood prayer, and he agonized. That's the word, literally. He agonized in prayer for the church at Colossae. Um, and he prayed that they may stand firm. You, you remember the whole book of Colossae. There, there's uh, false teachers. There are people who are trying to get them to worship angels. Some of them are trying to get them to worship the stars. There's a lot of confusion about Greek philosophy. And um, Epaphras is praying that they will stand firm in the will of God, based on the word of God, that they would become mature and fully assured in their walk with God and in their eternal salvation. He prays specifically that the Colossian church will thrive. Verse 13, Paul says, I vouch for him, for Epaphras, that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. He's also praying for two other churches, one at Laodicea nearby, one at Hierapolis nearby. Verse 14, 
This is the seventh one on the list. Luke, the doctor. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Very little is mentioned in the New Testament about Luke, but he's all over the New Testament. Um, And when he writes, he doesn't use his own name. Luke was a favored traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a physician, and that seemed to be pretty beneficial for Paul because he had some issues with his health, and he had uh, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was, and he also got beat up a lot. It's good to have your own personal doctor when uh, you are being abused with beatings. And Luke was there for Paul. Luke was there with Paul for over two years in Rome in Acts 28, where we leave Paul at the end of the book of Acts. Luke later, not at this time, later Luke will write the Gospel of Luke. And he will um, put in a lot of time doing research and interviewing eyewitnesses. And he will write the Gospel of Luke. And then he will write the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. Again, he will do the research, but he was also there as an eyewitness. He traveled with Paul much of the time. As you read the book of Acts, you can find Luke's presence by whenever he says, we. If he doesn't say we, he's not there. He uses the editorial we to identify his presence with the apostle Paul. Verse 14, we come to Demas, the deserter, and um, he says, our dear friend Luke, Luke is a dear friend, and then he just says, and Demas, nothing to say about Demas, but he's there, Demas, the deserter. Later, he will desert Paul right before his death, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, do your best to come to me quickly, he's telling Timothy, this is when he's in prison, he's going to be executed in Rome. And uh, he says, do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has also gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Demas deserted Paul when he needed someone. Some people do fall away. Some people do leave us. And... It's that sad. Verse 15, he mentions the brothers at Laodicea. He says, give, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her home. Brothers and sisters at Laodicea just are the church in general. He just wants to greet them, just recognizing them. Then we come to Nympha, the hospitable one, verse 15. Nympha and the church in her home. Little is known about Nympha. She is likely a well-to-do woman, perhaps a widow, mindful of Lydia, the seller of purple in Philippi. That's how the church got started in Philippi. A woman who saw the value of the gospel of Christ and the need for the gospel in her city opened her home. They started a church there. Lydia was an entrepreneurial kind of person. She did well in her business. And some people, like Nympha and like Lydia, had large homes. When you think of a church in a home, it's not like your home. Some of these homes would easily hold 50 to 100 people. And uh, Nympha is offering her home. And I, with that would come service and food and places to stay for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel. Verses 16 and 17, we meet Archippus the pastor. 
verse 16. After this letter has been read to you, see to it you also read the church, uh, read it in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you turn read the letter from them. So here's the deal. The Colossians letter was sent to the Colossians, then the letter was to be sent to the Laodiceans. So it was read by more than one church. And the church that was from the Laodiceans was to be read in Colossae. And what is the letter from the Laodiceans? I'm glad you asked. I don't know. But there's no letter written by Paul that we have to the church at Laodicea. But we do know that the letter written to the Ephesians was a circular letter, meaning it was read to many churches. It was like a classic for all New Testament churches. And that's the letter likely that was coming from Laodicea, so it could be read there. And then we, we see Archippus, the pastor, verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. We don't know too much about Archippus. Apparently, he's the son. He's mentioned in Philemon. Apparently, he's the son of Philemon and Mrs. Philemon. And the church is meeting in Philemon's home. And Archippus is the young pastor. Now, he doesn't tell Archippus directly. He tells the church to remind Archippus, see to it that you can complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. Lastly, we come to Paul the Apostle, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. The end. And we finish the book of Colossians. It was very common, it was customary in Paul's day for there to be a secretary called an amanuensis. Paul dictated his letter to the Colossians. Maybe it was to Tychicus. And then at the very end, Paul signs it in his own hands. We think perhaps Paul was becoming blind by this time because he writes very large letters. You can see it in the book of Galatians. Um, but they can tell, hey, that's Paul. And his, his signature authenticated the letter to the Colossians that it was from Paul. And Paul sends his greetings. He says, remember his chains. He is in chains for Christ. It has some limitations, but it has some opportunities. Paul wants them to remember him in prayer about his circumstances. Why is he there? He was there because he proclaimed the gospel and got sent to Rome. And he's been there for two years. Remember my chains. He's not saying, hey, help me. I need to be released. He says, I just want you to remember my chains. We're going to walk through this with God. So what we've seen here, real people, real families, real stories, real struggles. So that, you know what? This is how you and I got the gospel today. People like this, 2,000 years ago, lived their lives, served Christ. And the gospel message has been passed from one city, from one generation to the other, over 2,000 years to us. Because somebody shared the gospel with you, and they got the gospel from somebody else. So, we see clearly achieving mission in the first century required team, teamwork. Secondly, achieving mission in the 21st century requires the same teamwork. This is a shorter part. The same teamwork. First, the church is a body with many parts. We have the same mission. How do we say our mission? Let me remind you. Thanks for asking. To help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. That's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We want people to connect with God, to begin a relationship with Him, and we want people to grow and thrive and become fully devoted followers of Jesus. 
the church is a body with many parts, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14. You know this, but let's, let's read it. Just as a body, a human body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. That's the deal here. Human body has many members, many parts, yet it's only one body. Same is true for the body of Christ. For we were all baptized into one spirit, so as to form one body. A lot, of, a lot of misunderstanding about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's one of the main verses in all the Bible that explains it. Baptized by the Holy Spirit. When you, when you placed your faith in Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, took you out of the world and he baptized you into the body of Christ. And you were immersed into the body of Christ. And now your identity is in Christ. You are a member of Christ's body. You were baptized. You were joined together with the body of Christ. We were all not just spiritual people, but every one of those carnal Corinthians were baptized as well, by the way. It wasn't just for the super spiritual or the next step in their faith. It was for everybody who had placed their faith in Christ. Didn't make any difference whether they were Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We were all given one spirit. No distinction in the body. No distinction in race. No distinction in the color of skin. No distinction between male and female all baptized into the body of Christ as one. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Okay, got too far away from my notes. Each member of the body, verses 15 through 20, has a different role. Each member, let's look at 15 through 20. You already knew this. So if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, oh, I wish I were an eye. Only eyes can be a part of the body. Nope. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Next slide. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Think about that. It's how God wanted it. The parts we have in the body of Christ are the parts he wanted. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Human body has many different parts. Each one has different roles. Each one is unique. Each one is necessary. Each one contributes to the body. Each one makes the body better. In the church, there are many parts. Many members, yet one body. Each part has a role in achieving the church's mission. Each one of us is needed to help people connect with God and to develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. Right? Thank you very much. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. If you are a follower of Christ, when you place your faith in Christ, you were given at least one spiritual gift, probably more than one spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability for every believer in Christ to build up the body of Christ. It's for the body. It's not for self. It's not so, boy, aren't I cool and does this help me feel good about myself? No, spiritual gifts are for the body of Christ. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. So if you have a spiritual gift, you are to be faithful with it. It has a purpose, it has a use, and you are to use it to serve. If anyone speaks, some of you are teachers. 
or have responsibility to lead and stand up and speak before others. They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. So you're accountable and you're responsible. Do your job well. If anyone serves, that's nearly everything we do, they should do so with the strength God provides. We can't do it by ourselves. Without Christ, we are nothing. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So, um, you know, the bridge, 21st century, has many body parts, yet we are one body. You know, if Paul were writing today to the bridge church in Eau Claire, he would use different names, wouldn't he? He might say something like, remember your faithful servants, Bill, Cameron, and Mike. They humbly look out for your welfare. And don't forget those who lead growth groups, people like Ryan and John and Willie and many others. Please encourage David for his hard work when he leads worship. Thank all of his team. They encourage us every week. Be sure and thank the Bridge Kids leaders, Kayla, Becky, Katie, and Kim, and all those on their team. They love your kids and they serve you well. Don't forget Luke and Lane, Ruth, Laura, Kayla, and Nate. Thank them for their faithful ministry to our students. Encourage Emily, along with Nick. They are your servants uh, in Christ. Don't forget those who pull the trailer every week and those who do the setup and the teardown. Say thank you often. Remember those who serve in hospitality. They refresh your soul. Thank those who serve at the info table and run the sound and the graphics every week. Remember to thank your ushers. They are faithful and trustworthy. Oh, yes, remind Pastor Jerry, see to it that you complete the work that he has received in the Lord. And we are a team. We need each team member. As we serve together on mission, we are to love one another. We're to serve one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to build up one another. We're to forgive one another. Sometimes we are to admonish one another, and we are to confess our sins to one another. We are to be kind and compassionate toward each other. In his excellent book, Doing Church as a Team, Wayne Cordero writes of uh, his first experiencing, experience in canoe racing in a six-man team. Uh, they were instructed the first time in the canoe to go one-eighth of a mile as fast as they could. Oars of the canoe fa- flailed out and... Uh, in and out of the water. There was no instruction whether they should be on the right side or on the left side. Wayne noticed that when he brought his oar from the right to the left, he hit the guy in front of him and marked up his back. It turned out that that happened on several occasions to several different men. The, The canoe began to fill with water and it was totally exhausting. It took one minute and 48 seconds to go one eighth of a mile. Then they were trained by an expert. They were told to row easy, moving as the man in front of them, following the lead stroker. They practice again and again. Stroking became rhythmic like a metronome. When they switched sides, they did it together. Now the second time trial came, one-eighth mile. 
This time, no flailing. Their oars entered the water silently. The canoe moved through the water like a knife through jelly. Each stroke mirrored the one in front of them. It was easy work. They finished 24 seconds faster on the first day. Nobody was tired. You know, God has so designed the church that the church rode together and served together as one team, as one man, with one mission, because together we're better, and together we're going to thrive. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for your design of the church. We thank you for your instructions from the first century that are so relevant to us today and so needed by us today. God, we acknowledge the mission you've given us to help people connect with God and for all of us to be involved in becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. Lord, help us to serve as one, as a team. Help us to preserve the unity in the body of Christ. May we be on mission together. May we find the ease and the rhythm that you've given to us for the sake of Jesus. Amen.